So you're probably wondering about the table. Um, so last week, uh, Pastor Craig and Pastor Diane talked about how important it is to follow biblical uh, interpretation and how the rabbis would sit while they preached and the congregation would stand. And Ellie and I thought, well, we can do that. So here we are. Um, so the Jordan River is dangerous at the best of times, but at flood stage, it is up to a mile wide, 12 feet deep, and has a forceful, swift current. And yet as the scene fades up today, the leaders are, of Israel are walking through the nation as the camps out at the side of the Jordan River and telling them to get ready. God is about to bring them into the promised land. And then we see the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant walk right up to the edge of the waters of this dangerous rushing river and just keep going. There's no hesitation. They just walk straight in. Why? Well, to find out the answer, we need to rewind just a little bit. Eighty years earlier, the nation of Israel is at a completely different body of water. Charlton Heston was standing on the road of the, on the rock above the Red Sea. and Oh, sorry, that's the movie, yeah. So Moses was standing on a rock with the Red Sea on one hand and the entire might of the Egyptian empire bearing down at him from the other side. Now, this is not a great place to be in. But instead of reading 14 chapters of the entire book of Exodus, here's the Cliff Notes version for you. Israel has been enslaved in Egypt, and through ten plagues or miracles, depending on your perspective, the Egyptian pharaoh was persuaded to let his free labor force walk into the desert with most of his valuables. Then, after they leave with all of his stuff, pharaoh realizes what he's doing by letting them go, conveniently, of course, forgetting about all the plagues that happened when he wouldn't let them go. And he sends his whole army to bring the Israelites back to Egypt to resume their job making bricks. Now that's about 100 years of history for you. I think that's pretty good. Israel is now stuck between the proverbial rock and the hard place. They've made it to the side of the Red Sea. And so now they either walk into the ocean to die, or they walk back to Egypt with the army, most likely to die. And so naturally, they get a little upset with Moses for forcing them into such a horrible choice. They said to Moses, and I quote, Was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. That's how to read that, by the way. Drama, drama, drama. So, I used to be cool. You know, I've heard that, but I want to hear you prove it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I got to be a whitewater rafting guide in college. And the week we spent every May training for the summer was something else. So we were jumping into rivers, running everything from class 3 to class 5 rapids in frigid main waters for hours. And one of the more perilous moments I can remember was jumping into the Whitewasher Rapid, which is aptly named because it feels exactly like being inside a washing machine. Not that I would know, but I can't anticipate. 
because the current pulls you under the water and immediately into a tight spiral. And the one instruction you are given is to pull your body into a tight little ball, hope you took a big enough breath, and wait. Because eventually, the current will pop you up and release you about 20 to 30 feet downriver. Oh, that's comforting. But one look at the instructor's face and you can tell they are not the slightest bit concerned. He is 100% confident that this will work. So, I jump into the river and as I'm swirling around underwater at an alarming rate, I have a moment. A, well, I might die moment. But I have no choice in that moment but to follow the one instruction I've been given and believe the promise of air to come. And this is pretty similar to where Moses and the Israelites are at. They have no place to go but into the water and trust that what God says will be true. And it does. God sets the waters of the Red Sea to one side so the whole nation of Israel can walk across on dry ground, while the entire Egyptian army watches, dumbfounded. And what's more, when some of the Egyptian army gets it in their heads to follow Israel through the waters, God brings the sea crashing down, freeing Israel from their captives forever. Trust was forced upon them, but God comes through anyway, proving that he can indeed be trusted, that he is faithful, and that his words are true. See, here's the thing. There comes a moment in all of our lives when we have to make a choice. Either we take a leap of faith and believe in the promise of God, or don't. Now, for many of us, the choice may come when we really seem to have very little to lose from trusting. Either God is for us, or he isn't. But the beauty of those moments is that it gives God a chance to work in a way that we can actually see it work. In those moments when we're paying attention, God proves his faithfulness to us. Now, it's not usually quite so dramatic as an ocean parting in front of us or water crashing in on all of our enemies. But it's a moment that we can look back on and say, when we needed him most, God was there. Now, I'm sure that all of you can think of a moment or two like that. But it's those moments that are catalyst moments for us. Uh, They prompt questions that maybe there really is God that we are listening to, that Jesus is somebody worth following. So when is that moment that God came through for you? It can be tempting to compare our stories to others and diminish our own stories. Something like, well, I don't have anything as dramatic as that. But big or small, God proves himself faithful, present, and real, whether we are actually looking for him or not. So, 40 years passes. And with God's help, Israel has gotten the Ten Commandments. They've raised children. They've defeated armies. And they've wandered all over the wilderness, following a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And finally, God says, now is the time for you to scout out this new land I'm going to give to you, a land called Canaan. And this is the moment they've been waiting for, for 40 years. They've been waiting for this moment. And so God speaks to Moses, and we hear these words in Numbers chapter 13. 
The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So, at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. Now, all of them were leaders of the Israelites. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and into the hill country. See what the land is like, and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or they are fortified? How's the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and they explored the land. Now, the wilderness of Paran is not entirely devoid of life, but it is a very harsh land. It's full of these dry riverbeds that are, um, they flood a few times a year when it might rain. But because it never stays there, there's no topsoil. There's no uh, fertile ground at all. It's all gravel. You can't grow much in the desert of Paran other than the native acacia trees, which, fun fact, were what was used to build the Ark of the Covenant. This is not a hospitable place. So imagine their reaction when 12 spies come back from Caden loaded down with grapes and pomegranates and figs. People are pretty impressed. The spies say that the land is amazing, that it's overflowing with milk and honey, which is their way of saying that there's a lot of room for grazing herds, that there are flowers abundantly for bees to make honey. It's a land of beauty and abundance. But then their description takes a bit of a turn. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So not going to be so easy. But if you notice in their description, they describe the land twice. And the second time, things start to change a little bit. In the first time, the people are tough. And the cities have walls. But by the second time, suddenly the land devours those who are living in it. And suddenly, the people aren't just strong. They're the Nephilim. Which, if you read the book of Enoch and in the the legends, they say that the Nephilim are people who were born of women and demons. Things are escalating for them, and their anxiety is building. Now, this one time, Jesus is teaching, and a guy comes up to him and asks, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus, without missing a beat, answers, If you want eternal life, keep the commandments. And I imagine the guy smiles confidently because he says, Awesome. I do that already. Anything else? And Jesus answers, If you really want to be perfect, go sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and then follow me. And the text says, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Our perspective on what God is doing shows our level of trust in him. And ultimately, it shows us how badly we want what God is offering. 
The young man didn't see the change God was introducing into his life as something that would set him free. In fact, when faced with a choice between his wealth or eternal life, it sounds like he actually felt angst about which one was more important, which pretty vividly illustrates his priorities to us. And we don't ultimately know what he chose, but that's okay because the text isn't really about him. It's asking us a question. What work are you willing to let God do in your life to make you more like Jesus? Are we too encumbered with baggage to allow God to work? And that baggage isn't necessarily wealth or comfort. It can be things like our anxieties, our past, our traditions, our lust for the next biggest thing, or even our fear of doing something we've never done before. Back to Israel hearing about this land. They're they're freaking out that this thing is not going to happen. And yet, this is the land that God said, this will be yours. I will give it to you, he said. Now, of the, two, of the 12 spies, there are two, Joshua and Caleb, who believe God, and they agree with Moses, and they say, let's go now. God will give us this land. But the other 10 start spreading rumors, and they start spreading panic. And so the people rebel. In chapter 14, it says that that night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. The Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole community said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. You have to read a lot of numbers in a whiny voice. With a little pirate thrown in there at one point. (laughs) It sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? It's kind of like when they're standing with their backs to the Red Sea and they see the Egyptian army closing in on them. But there's no army here. They've been standing in the wilderness, wandering all over the place, and they've seen amazing things. They've eaten food that fell from the sky. They've seen drinkable water produced from rocks. They've eaten quail that just appeared out of nowhere one day. For 40 years, their clothes are in pristine condition. 40 years in the wilderness, they have never lacked for anything that they've needed. Which is the problem with nostalgia. Now, by nostalgia, I'm not talking about, oh, I love listening to Christmas shoes every year on the radio. Although, let's be honest, that can be taken too far. True nostalgia is when we pine for the days of old... Because we are convinced that our best days are behind us. Because God says things like, Behold, I'm making all things just like they used to be. Or, I'm making all things like we've always had them. No! God says, I am making all things new. After 40 years, the Israelites have every reason to trust that God will keep his promise, that the land will become theirs somehow. But out of everyone, only two choose to trust him. You could say that their hearts are still in Egypt. They're physically free, yes. But their hearts and their minds after these 40 years are firmly entrenched in their slavery. 
Just like the rocky riverbeds of this desert of Paran that they're stuck in, water pours down out of the sky every year, and yet it never sinks in. So the land remains infertile, and nothing of substance can grow. They look with rose-colored glasses at the past, and they think how much better it was in slavery. And so God says, none of you will see the promised land. He says, I told you that the best is yet to come. But you are going to miss out on that promise because you refuse to trust me. You are going to be now in the wilderness for 40 more years. Now this God can be trusted to be good. Because this is what it says next. The Lord said, Because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. So God keeps his word, and the promise doesn't die, but it passes to a new generation. What if sometimes our desire for comfort or the familiar is just a little bit greater than our desire for the future that God is calling us to? When have we forgotten those early stories of how God has come through for us and allowed them to give us the courage to not just choose the careful, cautious, or even fearful approach? In John chapter 3, Jesus and his cousin John the Baptist are both doing ministry. They are both baptizing people when an argument breaks out between John's disciples who are starting to get a little bit competitive. Rabbi, they say, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and now everyone is going to him. For a moment, they have lost sight of the good that is happening. They have stopped seeing that new people were coming to be saved and instead hyper-focused on how something was different and how something was affecting them and the way they had done things before. But unlike our rich young friend who went away sad, John the Baptist shows us the best way to respond. He says, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. He must become greater, and I must become less. John knows the promised Messiah has arrived, and he desires that more than he wants recognition or numbers or anything else. He knows there is tremendous joy and freedom in seeing Jesus exalted, known, and shared far and wide. So, 40 more years pass. Again, they've lived a life out in the wilderness. Children have been born and raised on the move. And one by one, the generation that left Egypt begins to pass away. And by the end, not even Moses is alive anymore. And then what they've been waiting for is finally here. God, sends, uh, God tells them to send their worship pastors into the river at flood stage. That's who the the Levites are, the worship pastors. Didn't you know that? Oh, it's important. Come on. Did you bring your swimmies? Uh, I don't think they had. They were carrying a thing of rocks. so. So there's no whining. There's no questioning. There's no, why didn't we leave Egypt? And not even, oh, it's going to be so cold. They're not even worried about that. This generation has grown up in the wilderness. They've grown up watching God provide for them over and over and over again. Over 40 years, the nation of Israel has been completely transformed from this whiny rabble 
to a community that lives boldly in faith. Because in the wilderness, every single step is a step for them of trust. Their lives have become defined by following God in the cloud and in the ark. And so as soon as the priest's feet touch the water, something amazing happens. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Not wet, soggy, fish-covered, seaweed-laden goo. Dry ground. For people who have been living in the desert for 80 years, that has got to be a very reassuring thing. So one of our earliest raft guide tasks was to learn how to swim across the river, which seems pretty simple, except that when you think about it, there's only one natural direction in a river, and that's down, downstream. So across seems a little bit impossible. And the instructions we were given, again, not all that helpful. You are told to throw yourself into the river with perfect belly flop form, head facing upstream. Swim as hard as you can, and then roll yourself backward into the current, the very thing you are trying to escape. And when you do, the current will pop you out by the shore. Interesting. It looks a lot like this, but it feels a lot like this. (laughs) And the problem that a lot of trainees have is that when they're in the middle of the current, swallowing the entire river, they panic and try to escape. But when they try to do it their own way, the current doesn't let them go, and they end up being washed downstream to be pulled out by another teammate. To surrender to the current feels completely counterintuitive. But that's ultimately where freedom from the chaos is found. The life and ministry of Jesus was also completely counterintuitive. Jesus had a task that didn't make a whole lot of sense. To be his people's rescuer, Jesus had to die on a Roman cross. It doesn't make sense, but it was the way to life. And the way Jesus served didn't make a whole lot of sense, at least at first. Jesus didn't stick to the usual crowds. In fact, he went out of his way to set a new precedent. The last shall be first, the littlest, the most valued, the poorest, the richest, the most despised, the ones most deserving of grace, mercy, and compassion. And this is the life that Jesus has called us to. It doesn't make sense, but in this way of living is life to the fullest. As the new generation stands before the Jordan River, they know that the life that God has promised is over there. It's on the other side. And they know that they don't go alone. But they remember the stories of the generations before. And they remember God's faithfulness to those generations. They see God's presence in the Ark of the Covenant and in this cloud as it goes before them. And it's these things that give them the courage to just walk right into the water. And this is why telling stories of our faith is so important. Every generation needs to share our experiences of God's presence and especially of God's faithfulness in our lives so that everyone's faith can grow. 
We've heard two stories today of two generations with one very similar challenge. Both needed to follow God across the water to reach the promise God had given. And it's the same for every generation today. Each faces its own unique challenges. Whether it was the Great Depression or economic recession, world wars, social media, 9-11, any sort of cultural revolution, I'm sure you can think of other examples for your generation. The good news is, is none of these are a surprise to God. But more importantly, it means that every generation has something in common. They have had or will have an opportunity to depend on God and to let God prove his faithfulness, his goodness, and his mercy. But it is far easier to take those steps to depend on God when we've heard the stories of how he has come through in the past. Now, if you are a young person, you have the chance to learn from the stories of those who have come before you. You have the chance to learn from their mistakes, to learn from their victories, and to choose sometimes a better path because of what you learn. But even so, you already have stories of God's faithfulness in your lives, of God in action today in a way that can inspire and encourage those who've come before you. Tell your stories. And if you're an old person, be encouraged by those stories. Ask questions and be willing to be vulnerable with your stories of how you've grown, but more how you're still growing. A life-transforming walk with Jesus is seen as our stories play out over time. But they can't only be the old stories. Just like the nation of Israel, every generation needs to experience God's love and faithfulness for themselves so they can begin to tell new stories to the world today. And this is why our icon for this week is a leaf. Now, last week we saw that the centrality of the word of God was represented by a sun. Because Jesus, the word of God, is the light of the world. And so the leaf is an appropriate choice for a life-transforming walk. Because a leaf takes what the sun offers and grows. But a leaf isn't for itself. It is part of something bigger. It's part of a tree. And if it disconnects from the branch, it dies. And our stories can be like that. They are part of something bigger, but they're temporary. And so for the tree to remain a tree, each year we must see new stories of how our community more deeply imitates God's wisdom and God's character. See, apart from the tree, the leaf can't do anything. Apart from Jesus, apart from our faith community, Scripture says we can do nothing. So today we invite you to start telling each other stories of God's faithfulness. You'll find questions out on the tables in the gathering place to help prompt your discussion. So grab your coffee and your snacks and find some people to chat with. And ask each other, when has God come through for you? Be vulnerable and willing to share when is a moment that you can look back on and see how fear maybe held you back. And when is a moment you stepped out in trust? Now, Bethany is in the process of discerning what comes next in our communal story. That's really the question of this whole vitality process. What does the next chapter bring? But lest we complicate it, who we are walking towards is still exactly the same, the person of Jesus. As we reflect on our stories of trust in God's faithfulness, 
May they give us the courage to take steps in obedience towards the life that Jesus modeled for us and what it looks like to be healthy and missional. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for a Bible filled with story after story that shows how much you care for the well-being of your children and how you have made the impossible possible for them. Thank you for all the ways that you have shown yourself to be faithful, present, and real in each and every one of our lives. Thank you for the big ways, and thank you especially for the small ways. We praise you for being a God who is in the business of making new things. You take every part of our stories and you transform them into something beautiful to reflect your glory. Thank you. As we get to know you more, your goodness, your faithfulness, your mercy, may we just be filled with the trust and the joy that comes from surrendering fully to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.